You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. My name is Aoife McCullough and I'm a research fellow at ODI. So I'm really glad you've taken a break from your Christmas shopping and Christmas parties to come here and talk about the very serious issue of non-state actors in governance systems. Increasingly, governance and accountability programmes are being implemented in places with limited state presence and where the state may not be the main source of power. But standard accountability models are based on the idea that the state is the main source of power and that we can increase accountability by either improving citizens' access to information about the state or by empowering citizens to make demands on the state. This evening we want to focus on the challenges of trying to improve accountability in in places where non-state actors compete for and influence power. We will reflect on some of the learning that has emerged from the DFID-funded implementation and analysis and action of accountability programme in Somalia. So we still haven't figured out what that uh, title actually means. So we will refer to it as the IAAAP programme from now on. Um, so this programme is it's managed by Matt McDonald and it provides fun, it's DFID funded and it provides funding to NGOs that are interested in implementing innovative programmes to, imp- to increase accountability. So we'll hear, first hear from two pro- projects that were implemented in Somalia that tried to work with non-state actors to improve accountability. One project worked with elders to to promote anti-corruption commitments among presidential candidates. And the learning from this programme will be presented by Mohamed Mubarak, the director of Markati, which is an NGO based in Mogadishu. Um, He is joining us online. Um, His connection has not been that stable, so unfortunately we're just going to hear his voice. Um, Another project that we'll hear from is a project that worked with informal managers of IDP camps in Mogadishu, or what are more commonly known as gatekeepers. And the project worked directly with gatekeepers to try and increase their accountability to IDPs. So the learning captured from this project will be presented by Eric Brild, director of TANA, a consultancy based in Copenhagen. So Somalia is not the only country where international development programmes aimed at supporting governance need to contend with powerful non-state actors. After getting insights into what worked and what didn't work work in IAAAP projects, we'll be hearing from Mukhtar Kane and Maurice Tadros, who will be reflecting on their experiences in Mali and in Pakistan. So Mukhtar is the programme manager for the FCO Sahel programme, and um, will be talking to us about his, uh, his experience in Mali. Maurice is the co-leader of the Power and Pol- Popular Politics Cluster at IDS, and she is currently co-leading the DFID-funded research programme Action for Empowerment and Accountability, which is a research programme that explore- explores how social and political action can, tr- can contribute to empowerment and accountability in fragile states. This evening, we want to frame the discussion around the idea of safe to fail. So in a lot of these discussions, we often talk about our successes. But what we want to encourage here is 
the space to also talk about our failures because through talking about our failures, we can really learn about what works and what doesn't work. So failures are not necessarily something that we should cover up with, some, something that we should um, share and in a way be proud of because it's, we've taken the risk to try something new. Um, you can tweet ODI at ODI Dev and join the conversation using, that, using the hashtag nonstateactors. Um, we also have a great online attendance. So for those of you online, please post your, post your comments and I will do my best to integrate them into the discussion. After hearing from our panel, we'll be opening it out to the audience. Um, I'd encourage you to even think of your experience um, where you've come across failure in working with non-state actors on governance projects and please feel free to share them with us. Um, but before that, I'm going to now turn to Mohammed, who's hopefully online. Mohammed, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. How are you? Okay, great. Thanks so much for joining us this evening. Sure, thank you for having me. So I just want to start off our discussion this evening by asking you what were the key issues that you faced in working with non-state actors in your project in, Mog in Mogadishu? Okay, and, and to begin with, our work was with uh, um, was during the elections. Uh, so we were working with uh, an elders and uh, political um, candidates for office, and also uh, and voters. As you know, we, we had only fourteen thousand voters, so it was a very small number, and uh, which was done by design in order to be able to buy votes. So we are working with them and uh, trying to ensure that uh, we have a critical mass of um, signatures of people who had who would commit to not buy or sell votes. And uh, so we, so what we learned is that um, in the absence of a strong uh, accountability mechanism by the state, it's very hard for non-state actors to uh, to abide by the law. And uh, yes, yeah, so it's. Uh, Learning experience in that sense. Um, Mohammed, can you just say a little about your why you just decided to include elders in your program and what what your experience was of working with elders in an accountability program? Ah, okay, um, so the elders were the people who were elect who were selecting the voters, and it was a very uh, pseudo democratic. Uh, and exercise and done in order to gain some legitimacy for for the government, but uh, there was no uh, general election. So the elders were uh, picking out the voters. So if the elders vote, he will and uh, select and uh, voters who will vote for whoever buys him. So that's why we had to include the elders, and they are the and uh, fundamental unit and. Uh, of the political system in the country. So we had to include them. And uh, they are, of course, they are non-state actors. They are held accountable by no one. And uh, in most cases, they are not elected. And they are, and they take the job and based on lineage and in most cases. So it, we, we had to involve them in that sense. And uh, we also had to involve the candidates because if the candidates are unwilling to pay for 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 the seats and the elders will be forced to 
and to select people who will uh, vote people for, uh, based on policies and not uh, based on who gives them the most money. Okay, and um, when you were working with elders, was it quite hard to get them in involved in the program or did you find it quite easy to, to were they enthusiastic to, to participate? Elders were, and they, of course, they, they are elders and they, they've been, uh, they are political and veterans and they all, they say the good things and all the right words and, uh, and uh, so, but the problem was the implementation of what we agreed upon and uh, without uh, some, some, we had some candidates who had signed the, and the pact who were willing not to pay and uh, some of them later told us that uh, they would lose if they don't pay so they paid up and uh they give us evidence of uh and vote buying and everything and uh so which can which we which takes us takes us back to the fact that uh without strong state state institutions and non-state actors will continue to be held unaccountable because and although we had the evidence and uh, everything that was going on was uh, provable and uh, there was no way to hold anybody accountable so, so while while they were enthusiastic about participating in the program, ultimately they were unaccountable. So, it, it, there was it was very difficult to increase their accountability. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's that's what I'm saying. It's because um, because the state itself is uh, fragile, and the reason we we went to work with them is because of the fragility of the state, and uh, there's no other there's not there's no other strong accountability mechanism and uh, there's no there's n and they are the fundamental and uh, political unit and so we had to involve them and yet uh, we could not hold them accountable nobody can right so um just to give a bit of background so maham uh, markati were trying to increase the accountability of um, politicians in the election campaign by asking them to sign integrity packs and they asked elders to also sign um, pacts to commit to anti-corruption measures because they felt that elders were very much part of the system of corruption. Um, Mohammed, thanks very much for your contribution. We'll, we'll come back to your, um, your work in, in Somalia. We'll just turn to Eric um, to hear a little bit about your work with gatekeepers in Mogadishu. All right, thank you. Um, in short, uh, the whole gay people phenomenon in Mogadishu is, uh, is based on the fact that there is no access to formal IDP settlements, right? So in Mogadishu, you have approximately 2 million inhabitants, roughly. You have 500 to 600,000 internally displaced, or what is classified as internally displaced. And they need a place to stay, they need shelter, they need security, etc. And as the international community and the government is not in a position to provide that entrepreneurial Somali citizens and quite a number of old IDPs are uh, establishing settlements, informal settlements, where such services are provided. They do that and then they receive a cut of the humanitarian aid uh, provided to uh, the IDPs. It's a practice that's been going on, uh, started in the early 90s, and it's something we've been working on since 2012, but it's also a practice which has been denied to a large extent by the international community. Um, and where there has been a, you can say, a demonization of the gatekeeper system, and thus no one has wanted to 
touch base with these gatekeepers. Um, so when we initially started working on this, we were described as naive and, and legitimizing human rights abuses. Um, but the fact is that everyone was supporting the system. Now, you have 85% IDPs living in just three districts. The gatekeepers have signboards with their names on and telephone numbers. The district commissioners do not, right? So you have a very entrenched, informal local governance system in place. They have a system of settlement level. Each a number of settlements then have an umbrella management structure. A number of umbrellas then have a center management structure. So it's, it's more or less a completely formalized uh, governance system. It doesn't operate uh, with the same accountability and transparency mechanism as a, as, as a normal formal governance, governance, and that was, of course, one of the issues that we were trying to deal with. You can't not work with them, well, then let's try to see if we can improve uh, the accountability. So we went through several steps. We did trainings with the settlement managers in human rights, camp management, but also in related to the obligations we have via Sharia law, et cetera. And then we provided with them facilitation skills. Then we introduced them to the formal system. And then we made them make these commitments public to the uh, IDPs through signboards, to awareness raising processes. And then we established, there's been a number of alterations throughout, and I think we'll come back to that later. Um, but we established some monitoring committees where the formal government was chairing local government to assess whether these commitments were being held and where the IDPs uh, were heard and had a voice as well. So it's a small process to watch incremental uh, accountability improvements, you can say. And um, what would you say were the, the issues that you faced in working with the gatekeepers? <laughs> a number of issues. In, in addition to sort of what you can say, the initial stigmatization, uh, obviously, the political economy around the uh, gatekeeper system is extremely complex. Um, and even though we worked with it from 2012, we've had to constantly reassess and learn as we went along, um, and also understood that we've had to change our approach as, as we went along. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, of course, our major challenge has been how do we not legitimize uh, you can say bad practices or uh, practices we do not want to see. How can we ensure that we, uh, that we improve accountability and transparency without um, enforcing a, a, what some see as a predatory system? And did you also um, face a problem where if, if your work with a gatekeeper was not changing his or her behavior, that, that there was no one above that gatekeeper that you could um, to, because they're not for, part of a formal structure. Yeah, they're not part of formal structure, but they are. What we found was that the gatekeepers need to legitimize the role. They are not just dictators in their own environment. They mm. are uh, depending. It's very much a replication of what we see in, in many rural uh, Somali societies. They need to facilitate services. That's where they get some of the legitimacy from. Then they need the right links with the local clan leadership in that area, um, who also has the links to the local militia but they can't uh, behave uh, in any way they want. So they are actually, to some extent, downwards accountable. What we've been doing is trying to make them more upwards accountable as well, uh, as well as downwards accountable. So upwards accountable to, to who? To the local uh, government system, which also has its legitimacy issues in Mogadishu because you haven't had elections and you have a, a clan bias in the local government structure. But nonetheless, um, if we don't move towards a degree of formalizations, then you can't really have accountability systems uh, in place as such. Um, yeah. 
So one of the um, big issues that in, in our research on working with non-state actors to improve governance is that non-state actors are often part of exclusionary institutions. So, for example, elders in, in Somalia um, exclude women, absolutely, and also exclude youth. Um, Mohammed, I'm going to bring you back in here. Um, considering that elders are exclusionary, do you, do you still think it was worthwhile Markati work, working with them if, even if it meant that they were not reaching women and youth? Of course, um, regardless of, uh, of how exclusive they are, and we have to be uh, reasonable. They are the most powerful uh, unit in the country. And so they are the people who select the people who select the, the parliament, who select the president. So uh, we have to involve them regardless of um, how exclusionary they are. And uh, we, if, if I go back, I will do the same thing probably. And uh, I will do it at, on a much larger scale because um, one of our blunt um, um, lessons is that uh, and it was it was not covering, we didn't cover every, we didn't reach a critical mass. And uh, so we had uh, a number of signatories and uh, it wasn't enough to convince the rest. So, um, I would do it again. That's what I'm saying. Okay, and but how how would you then square the problem of um, including women and youth in in your program if you're working with even more elders? Uh, okay, so these the elders, unless we are going to have you and you can by definition and youth cannot be elders, and uh, so and uh, we we'll have. Whole, will take us so many generations to have women elders, and so that's uh, that's not something that is not our um, that's not our scope, and uh, it will take beyond my lifetime for that to change. So, and uh, we there's something that we can change, and which was an um, electoral corruption, and uh, I think uh, with the with the right tools and uh, and. Uh, the enough and coverage, I think, have uh, a better impact. Okay. And um, did, did Eric, did you also find that gatekeepers were part of an exclusive institution that that raised problems for you? Um, yes and no. First of all, as you say, from a gender perspective, quite a number of gatekeepers are actually uh, women in, in Mogadishu. Not in other towns of Somalia, where we also work with Smile and Busasa, but Mogadishu is... Is, is, is a different context. Um, I, I don't, the gatekeepers themselves, uh, some of them have uh, close links also to uh, the local uh, clan leadership and that of course uh, becomes a, you can say, part of an exclusive group. But not to, uh, to the extent that uh, Mohammed is, uh, is, is, is talking about. Um, I think the exclusion is more comes in when we needed to involve uh, the formal government in, in the work that we did. Um, because of the, uh, the ethnic structure of, of Mogadishu partly, and also the whole discussion of land and land rights, there is a, um, a lack of willingness to include IDPs into the formalized structure of Mogadishu and a lack of, of willingness to actually register IDPs as Mogadishu. It's, uh, because that may it skew the power balance in Mogadishu when you have a political settlement at, at, which is more representative at one point and also 
because of the access to valuable land. So we have had uh, a number of difficulties in involving elements of, of, of the local the Mogadishu mayor's office and also from the federal government in, in the activities that we did. And so you mentioned that the exclusion actually w became more of an issue when you involved the, the local government. Could you explain a little bit yes, more? Yes, at different levels. You can say, if you look at the local government at the decentralized level, so the district commissioners of the 17 districts uh, where we were working, three of them, they were very interested in what we did and have actually been very supportive because their main concern is actually uh, control and security. And they, it's a long story, but they don't, most of the current settlements they don't have normal access to. They had some years ago, but there have been evictions, etc. Um, so they wanted that access and they wanted a better overview. But if you move up to the Bernadier Regional Administration or the Mayor's Office, then it becomes more politicized and it also so in the, in the federal uh, government. There are a lot of supportive elements there as well, I should say. It's not a, a one-sided story. Okay, interesting. And uh, would you say that uh, the, the, can we call it an institution of gatekeepers? Sorry, if they're an institution, can, yes. Can we call it in, an institution? Oh, I think so, definitely. Yeah. No, no, yes. And would you say that there are differences in the form of exclusion between, like, say, for example, the more customary institutions such as elders and gatekeepers? <laughs> or do, do gatekeepers, in a way, mirror the traditional hierarchical structure? They mirror very well the traditional hierarchical uh, structure. Of course, they are... Uh, more powerful in some extent because they do have the backing of, of, of uh, the local leadership in that area, the owners of the land, formal and informal owners of the land and the local militia. But they mirror very much the, um, they, had, they work together with the camp committee, which is usually mirrors very well the council of elders that you will see in many uh, rural communities as well. They have to operate with them, they use them, and, and the different services provided are uh, assigned to different levels of management within uh, within the, the settlement. And they operate according to the here, the traditional uh, Somali law when providing penalties, etc. Um, so in that sense, it's just a mirror of, of uh, what we see in, uh, not just a mirror. Of course, there are nuances, but nonetheless. Yeah. So interesting. So it seems that um, while non-state actors, it's important to work with them because they are powerful, they often um, are, hold a lot of legitimacy in these environments that we're working in, but then they're part of um, institutions that are fundamentally exclusionary, whether they're customary institutions or institutions that are forming and evolving and and mirroring to a certain extent the the traditional or customary institutions. Uh, yeah, I, I guess you can say so. I, uh, as mentioned, there are nuances, and, and because you have newer settlements, uh, etc., you have a less cemented power structure as, than you would have in, in a village that has, has been in the same place uh, for many years. Plus, it's a more metropolitan context, and you have usually more of a, a clan mix in many of these settlements, and that provides, a, a, you can say, a different, uh, a different scenario. Yeah. Okay, very interesting. I'm just going to um, broaden out the discussion now um, and uh, turn towards Marise, who has, as I mentioned, been uh, co-directing this large DFID-funded accountability program at IDS. Um, Marise, do, you, do these issues that Eric and Mohammed are raising, do they resonate with your findings 
from your research? Well, our program is still very early on. This is a program that's called Action for Empowerment and Accountability, and it looks at the question of what does collective action look like in fragile settings, and settings not countries, because um, sometimes you have part of a country that is fragile, but other parts that are not. So it's interesting because we have a very varied set of countries. We have uh, Egypt, Myanmar, Pakistan, Nigeria, and Mozambique. And each of them have very different power configurations of what fragility means. But it's very relevant to the work that you're raising, Alpha, because uh, when we looked at fragile contexts, the three things that resonated very strongly is the idea of fragmented authority. That authority, either within the same political order, is fragmented within competing actors within the same system, or it's fragmented between national, subnational, and local, with different power holders having a subset, um, or that there is direct conflict between state and non-state actors over different terrains or different issues. And the second thing um, that is also very relevant to the question of non-state actors is contested legitimacy. It's not that one actor has legitimacy in one part and the other not. It's just that legitimacy is constantly being contested. It is up for grabs. And the perceptions of what legitimate, what is legitimacy and not will vary from one state, one non-state actor to another. And the final point is um, what I would call amoebic governance. Um, I don't mean to get into biology, but amoebic in the sense that um, it's very volatile and it's constantly changing. You know, like an amoeba? Uh, where, you know, it sort of takes over and then it sort of takes back. And, and I think that was one of the things that we noticed about its dynamic nature. Now, one of, the, of those five countries, one of the countries that perhaps I'd like to focus on because they're so different in terms of the issues for non-state actors is Pakistan. Mm -hmm. uh, my, um, now, of course, this is also to say that this is a consortium comprised of many different actors, including PASCAR in Nigeria, which is a network of scholars. It includes ideas and collective in Pakistan who are our partners, it includes ITAD, um, and it includes uh, the uh, Center for Accountability Research in the University of Washington. I just want to emphasize that because it's a, we all, you know, work together. Um, and it uh, includes ITAD here in the UK and Oxfam, uh, Great Britain, working in Myanmar. Now, the, looking at the work of my colleague Aisha Khan, and please come and see me if you want any references for her work. They're fantastic stuff. Um, where she was looking at what did it mean for international actors in Pakistan to be supporting the jirgas, um, two kinds of jirgas. There is the, the, one of the kinds was the, um, the conflict resolution jirgas by the conventional elders, heads of tribes, and the other were the women jirgas, which were an offshoot of the traditional ones. And um, she noted a number of things. She noted, first of all, that uh, international actors believed that there was a vested interest in investing in these types of non-state actors because they wielded so much power in rural Pakistan. And pa a part of their power base came with the fact that they had very strong collaborations with the Taliban order where that the Taliban had certain centers of power in certain parts of Pakistan. 
And it's interesting because a number of things. First of all, um, she noted that the formation of women jirgas did not mean inclusionary orders. And this is really important because we tend to assume, get the traditional actors, get the elders to include women, and there you go. It'll become progressive. But what she showed is actually the women jirgas were perpetuating the same kinds of um, highly exclusionary forms of practices. The second thing she noted was what she called a displacement of spaces. She noted that with the external actors increased support for the jirgas, because they were seen as you know, powerful conflict resolution mechanisms, at the same time, there was a subtle, uh, let, let's put it this way, uh, re retrenching, re moving back from supporting other actors in civil society that were trying to build the legitimacy to contest the jirgas. So she noted it, it wasn't just that th this support was being channeled, but that inadvertently it was crowding out other actors with contending con agendas that were contesting legitimacy of the jirgas. And the second thing that she noted was that um, uh, they assumed that once you create these partnerships, that the jirgas would necessarily always be taking on the so-called progressive agendas. Mm -hmm. But what happened across time was that the jirgas were, you know, it's all about power, right? It's about bargaining power. They recognized that the international actors were interested in their bargaining power in the local communities. So in, this, in the area of vaccinations, where the Taliban was going around saying, this is an imperialist venture intended to sterilize Muslim community, and the jirgas and other actors were you know, being put in the front line to say, actually, this is not. Uh, across time, um, there was a, a, a playing with that kind of idea. Oh, you know, if you don't give us more support and use your imagination for what the support would look like, we will withhold our support for the vaccination regime. And so there was this continued, you know, just like people recognize their own bargaining chips. They, that became a case where support for the vaccination program kept on going ahead and being retreated, going ahead and being retreated, obviously creating a great deal of instability. But the final point, very quickly, is that it severely undermined the local women's actors and activists and nascent movements attempt at challenging the Talibanization of Pakistani society. Because these jirgas had conventionally supported honor killings. They had supported rape as retribution uh, during uh, tribal feuds and the exchange of girls to settle disputes. So by channeling more and more support for the jirgas at the expense of other local actors who were trying to challenge and contest their authority, um, they were in effect entrenching these, even if this was done in the face of women. And I think this is the most dangerous part of it, because what we see globally is that a lot of elders are absolutely fine with time to, yes, we'll support the external actors' agenda of including women. But the question that we need to ask is, what kind of accountability outcomes does this mean for the agendas that they are taking when these women are adopting the same kind of agendas that the male elders have espoused? And I'll stop there for questions. Great, great uh, insights there, Maurice, thanks. Just on the, on the bargaining um, uh, power, did you find that gatekeepers were also using a similar thing where 
they were trying to get more out of you? Well, first of all, I think it's important to stress that, that uh, in terms of, of, of financial gains, they didn't get anything directly out of us. There were no sitting allowances. There were no... Uh, no, but I mean, I think this is important. There were no per diems paid. Nothing was paid. So it was only in their own <coughs> self-interest to participate in this. But of course, they participated because we could facilitate links to uh, the local government. We could facilitate links uh, indirectly to the NGO environment, which was part of a process of enhancing their legitimacy among the IDPs. So that's the challenge, of course. Um, but there wasn't a lot to threat with, I mean, in our case, right? It's not that if you don't do, I mean, this is, is, is in, all, in their own self-interest. So what they did, you can say, they were slowly, I would call it, impounding accountability with the local government, but in that process then gaining links and access to, uh, to other um, <coughs> facilitation sources, so to speak. And in a way, using the program to increase their legitimacy in the... Well, that's, of course, that, that's what happens as, as part of this, you can say. Yeah. Their existence depends on their ability to facilitate links uh, and eventually uh, humanitarian aid as well. Uh, and thus, that is their interest um, in being involved in this. Um, Maurice, you, you, you touched a little bit on... Uh, legitimacy at the start of your um, short presentation and you emphasize that the fact that legitimacy is constantly being contested. Uh, do you think there are signs that the non-state actors that you were working with or that, that were benefiting from programs were, were benefiting from increased legitimacy through those programs or do you think there was a different dynamic going on in I think it, it sort of varied. I think in the case of Pakistan, the work of my colleague Aisha Khan was um, was mentioning that um, they, it's not so much that their legitimacy was increasing, but their power was increasing, that their scope of influence was increasing. Um, and um, the problem she noted is that this emanated from an external actor's discourse which dichotomized traditional versus non-traditional. So the traditional came to mean authentic, grassroots, legitimate, uh, grounded, and anybody else who wasn't part of what was seen as traditional was seen as Western, elitist, um, uh, um, uh, foreign, um, uh, urban-based, non-grassroots. And it's interesting because then when we looked at some of the discourses that um, that were also featuring in the work um, on displacing local women's rights activists in Nigeria and Egypt, the same pattern came. So there's this false dichotomy where you're either traditional and authentic, or uh, if you don't belong to that group, that clique group of elders, then you must be Western elitist. And, and there is a reason why this happened is because historically in development, at the very early stage, 40 years ago, say, you did have a problem in which Western actors only worked with those who are in their own image. Mm -hmm. So either they helped in establishing their own civil society organizations in many countries abroad, which sort of had the very Western veneer to them, or they engaged with the donor darlings, those that were able to, um, you know, uh, write the most brilliant proposals, but who had no constituency on the ground. And so what happened was the pendulums, you know, went from working with these to saying, oh, no, hold on, we've gotten it all wrong. We must go grassroots. We must go and work with the traditional. And that pendulum 
you know, now is sometimes, and without generalizing, in certain spaces, th through certain actors, through certain programs, as opposed to a generic phenomenon, swung to the other side where if you want to work with something that is authentic, you work with the traditional. And of course, the problem with that is, in reality, those dichotomies are very artificial. They do not exist. Elders and traditional leaders have aspects which are very modern and which, you know, they may use certain aspects which, you know, uh, <laughs> are constantly changing, they're not. And of course, the question of authenticity, well, who determines authenticity? Who is the guardian of authenticity? Who, who can say something is culturally uh, embedded or not, since culture is constantly changing? So what we found is, it's not just the practice that was delegitimizing by displacing the, the actors, it was the rhetoric, the discourse of binaries and dichotomies that simply don't exist on the ground because local uh, women's rights may be seen as authentic in, uh, in some regards and may be challenged on other regards. And the same thing for elders, they may be seen as legitimate and authentic in certain areas and seen as actually quite, um, marginal to the power dynamics on the ground in other areas. Yeah, and that's the, the real danger, I guess, with even um, dividing up into categories, yes. state and non-state yes. actors, um, that in reality there's this, this overlap between state and non-state actors, formal and informal actors, and I guess um, this, this creates what is, is often called a, a hybrid governance, which um, have, have you looked at a little bit at hybrid governance in your in your research? Well, we 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 sort of um, we found that uh, it, we found that it's exactly as you said the the spheres of influence between what is state and non-state is often very blurred because people can have multiple hats. They can be a civil servant while at the same time being part of a movement that is actually contesting the state. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, um, um, because of contested legitimacy, people will turn to different parts of the state and different state actors depending on the nature of issue and need that they have. Um, and that was very important, is that it, it is not so clear cut, the, the demarcations are not so um, set in stone. Great. Um, Mukhtar. Um, so Mukhtar, as I mentioned, is working with the FCO, uh, running their Sahel program. And I guess for the FCO, there's probably a great temptation to uh, differentiate between state and non-state actors uh, quite categorically. Do, does the FCO work with um, what they see as non-state actors in, the, in their activities in, in Mali? Um, yes, so uh, the FCO leads on the um, Conflict Security and Stability Fund uh, program in the Sahel, which is um, a global program that, um, uh, that provides development and security assistance at, uh, to country at risk of conflict and also in the most challenging, challenging uh, conflict affected state. Uh, in Mali, the FCO is have the UNP5 member. Uh, the, the UK is represented in the Malian um, Peace Accord Monitoring Committee. And as such, we do uh, listen to both state actors and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and non-state actors. So in our intervention areas, the weakness of the social and political contract, the weakness of the social and, uh, and political contract between citizens 
and the local authority and sometimes monk citizen themselves pollinate the ground, thereby enabling the emergence of a plethora of uh, non-state actors, including um, 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 ethnic-based self-defense groups and uh, community-sponsored uh, vigilantes, and etc. Increasing accountability in this kind of environment require modicum of social and political stability, which is lacking uh, in most of intervention areas, where the basis of inclusive ideology, where it still exists, has been seriously uh, weakened. So this makes our um, programming quite laborious because we have to um, uh, we have to deploy uh, conflict sensitivity approaches uh, that avoid social political foot lines amongst the multitude of non-state actors with uh, 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 with different uh, with different uh, um, with different interests. So we do see the actors and non uh, and non-state quite, quite under very uh, special lenses to ensure that um, we are not contributing to uh, feelings of um, alienations. Sure. So you're you're working with non-state actors more as as a as a strategy of inclusion rather than to actually you, you don't actually believe that you can change their behaviour in such a unstable environment. Is is that am I right in understanding? Yes, but. Um, the change in the behavior of nurse actors need to be yeah. org organic, yeah. not surgical, yeah. from our perspective, sure. personally as a program manager. Yeah. Uh, because these nurse actors, sometimes they, there's no code of conduct, there's no standard operating procedures, so it becomes difficult to regulate them. Yeah. So we have to, what is important is the, um, this internal and external accountability they have themselves. I need to give rise to, to, to the change in their, in their behavior. Let's take a case, uh, for instance, uh, of non-state actors in the security sector, which some of our sister programs in Nigeria work with um, non-state actors in, in, in the security sector. So if we increase, um, help increase the legitimacy area of the non-state actors, the risks of actually monetizing that legitimacy, as um, uh, Maurice was mentioning earlier, being used as to, to, to increase the scope of influence among other actors is very real. So in that case, we, um, the most important thing here to really try to look at is, 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 is to ensure that I change in behavior is much more organic mm. and then actually um, surgical. Okay, and so what strategies would you use, for example, to, to try and incentivize change in non-state actors' behavior in the security sector in, in Nigeria? Uh, I guess the, what I want to mention <laughs> as a conclusion uh, of, the, of, the, of, of my intervention right now, it was just basically to show that the um, to an attempt to incentivize a non state actors is um, is really a lottery. Yeah. Because of, um, and I mentioned earlier about the security um, sector, the allegiance in political loyalty, for instance, let's say in Nigeria or in, uh, in the Sahel, of the membership of this group mm -hmm. are quite dynamic. Yeah. And uh, to the RICs, having to increase the legitimacy of this particular group, who, let's say, in the case of the Sahel and Mali in particular, you increase the vision of this group, and the next morning, the members of that group may join actually another group that you are opposed to, or a more violent group, either 
by choice or by means of uh, protection against threats, um, that existential threats the person actually faced in, the, um, in their, in their, um, in their environment. So the strategy really is, um, is to ensure, because we're not, I know in the UK, for, for, uh, for instance, as you said, we, we seen as a government actor. But when you go to our in intervention area, we have to acknowledge that we're also operating under, uh, in territories under completely different jurisdictions. So our actions are quite very limited by the laws and by the realities um, of the ground. And we're not trying to say, well, this is exactly how we want to change it double around, but we work, we work much more with the local authorities as a kind of a partners in ensuring that, that, uh, um, that the situation is addressed to the best of, of, of our interests without actually excluding another group. Okay, very interesting. Um, I'm gonna open it up to the audience now. Um, we, so we, we've discussed a little bit the, the importance of working with non-state actors because they are powerful actors, they are legitimate in, their, in, in certain contexts. And I guess we, we, we looked a little bit about the, at the, the risks of excluding certain groups through working with non-state actors. Um, we discussed the issue of legitimacy and whether working with non-state actors increases their legitimacy or whether they, they use our programs, um, they instrumentalize our programs for their own benefits. Or in, in the case of the FCO working in West Africa, the risks of actually increasing a non-state actor that then creates that then links up with another non-state actor that we don't want to have any links with. So, very complex. Um, I'm welcoming questions. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just if you can um, state your name and your organisation. Thanks everyone for a really interesting uh, start. Um, I'm Gareth Wall. I'm from the Commonwealth Local Government Forum. Um, I'm particularly interested to, uh, particularly from Mohammed, who I hope is still on, still online, um, this idea that the traditional authorities are, are definitely not part of the state. Uh, it, that seems to be not the case in most Commonwealth countries. Um, uh, most countries, as they move forward, formalise the system. So here in the UK, we've got bishops in the House of Lords. I mean, they're not elected as much as these guys are there as part of the state as MPs, uh, legitimately. Um, so I, I, I find this, um, as I say, the dichotomy that you're trying to talk through a bit a bit problematic. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll come back on the other point later when I've remembered it. Cheers. Okay. <laughs> uh, Emma, you had your hand up there. Thank you. Um, sorry, I'm not sure if that's on. So. Two points. Uh, my name's Emma Grant. I work at Social Development Direct, and we're a little bit involved in the um, IAAAP programme. And uh, we, we pulled together some very, very, I guess I'd describe them as fragile findings around gender from the various projects that are involved in that programme. Uh, many of the projects did not have very explicit gender agendas. So these were very kind of uh, subtle emerging findings. So I don't, I want to kind of present them carefully. Um, but anyway, uh, one of the kind of more positive headlines is that um, through some quite intentional approaches, it, it, it is possible to make some inroads around that agenda. So just to give a few examples, by instead of taking a political economy approach uh, in a more traditional way, by taking a gendered approach to PEA, or um, by uh, 
preparing and working with uh, women, uh, female participants in particular audiences, you can kind of facilitate uh, approaches which are intended to kind of move the gender equality uh, agenda forward. So I was very struck by what you said, Marie, about this kind of rather bleak example of the women jurgers and how that had all gone very pear-shaped. So it's not to say that um, being intentional is necessarily going to lead to success, but it's pretty clear that without taking an intentional approach, nothing happens. You know, it does not happen by and of itself. So I wondered, although it's great to um, embrace this safe-to-fail agenda, as you've um, encouraged us to do, Eva, it's also kind of important, isn't it, to then say, OK, let's keep working on the, on the what works agenda. What would you do differently? What did you draw from that experience in Pakistan that, that you think, OK, so then maybe a different approach would, would look like this? Oh, we'll stop there. And maybe one more before... Is it Sam? Hi, um, I'm Sam. I'm ODI as well. Um, I wanted to ask about some things you talked about, about engagement, increasing legitimacy, or perhaps increasing power of these non-state actors. And I wondered if, if any members of the panel had any kind of reflections about like, how that, there can be trade-offs between that and broader processes of formal state building. So I know in Somalia, for example, there's lots of discussion about one of the big barriers towards formal state building is the, the people who've filled the gap when there's been a lack of a state there that, that not necessarily traditional non-state actors but NGOs, civil society organisations and the people who've been delivering services when the formal state has been lacking have quite a lot of power now and perhaps it's not in their organisational incentive to relinquish that and how that can be a barrier to, to formal state. So I wonder, I guess I'm asking reflections on how you think about the potential trade-off between being pragmatic and engaging with those who actually have power in non perhaps non-state actors, but how that might come into conflict with um, broader, broader processes of formal state building, which actually might actually be wanting to kind of shift the power elsewhere. I think there are three great questions. Um, I'm just going to uh, direct the, f the first one to Mohammed. Are you still online, Mohammed? Yes, I'm here. OK, great. Fantastic. So um, the question from the audience, I'm not sure if you heard it, was about whether you think that elders are, in fact, uh, more part of the state than not part of it. And so really, should we be calling them non-state actors? Either that was a very difficult question or we've lost Mohammed. <laughs> Mohammed, are you there? Okay, maybe it was a very difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we'll try and come back to him. Um, Eric, I don't know if you if you want to comment on that. Do you think the gatekeepers are increasingly becoming part of the state? Um. I think they can be. I think I'll, I'll, I think I'll take it a little bit also related to Emma's last question about uh, need to do something versus not doing something. The yeah. thing is they are there, right? So it's not we don't have the options of not doing something. Well, we do, but then we they will just continue cementing their position in society. Uh, I think in the present situation in Mogadishu, yes, they are part of the system. Over time, I think uh, I don't think necessarily that because they're not traditional elders as such. 
So they don't have this ancestral, you can say, inheritance of, of power in, in, in those areas. I think we need to move towards, a, uh, in the longer term, a more formalized, more traditional local uh, governance system. But in the medium term, they're definitely part of, of, uh, of the solution of legitimate uh, local governance in Mogadishu. Okay. Um, Maurice, I, I, I'm sure you're uh, keen to take up that question on, on the gender agendas yep. <laughs> and whether they're worth it or... I think I'm going to start actually on, on picking up where you left off because, of course, from context to context, there is, and even from time to time, so when we talk about interventions at a certain point in time, and then we think of another point in time, the strategy or the... But I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask who engages because um, I think sometimes local actors cannot afford not to engage with elders and local power holders that are either from a Western normative point of view, progressive or non-progressive, whichever it is, there's a situation which they wield power, you cannot afford to ignore them because ignoring them means that you will be um, basically preaching to those who have the same values and you live in your own bubble and you have no impact. But I think when it comes to external actors, I would say there are times when external actors should not engage because their engagement either incre increases a backlash against local actors or has the unintended outcome of increasing the power hierarchy that is oppressive on the ground. And I think we need to be honest our, with ourselves. Positionality is very important. And positionality is not about whether you think you're legitimate or not. It's about how you are perceived by the other end as legitimate or not. And so actually I would say, no, there are times when external actors should keep out. Now, I'm not putting it as a general principle. I'm just saying certain contexts, certain moments in time, certain power configurations, we need to actually say with humility, maybe we will have the unintended outcome of making things worse. Whereas in other times, of course, we have to intervene as external actors. On the gender question, I think it's really interesting because again, it will vary from context to context and time to time. Um, I would say what worked, you know, what things that we know across different case studies that actually help us think about enabling conditions for locally led processes of change. I think the first thing we should start with is externally supported forms of progressive action on the gender agenda don't tend to last. They need to be locally led, locally embedded with local sources of legitimacy, which are basically local leadership, local um, framings, how the issues are framed, and coalitions on the ground that support this. Um, so I think that's a really important point, building on what you've said, is that explicit, but they have to be locally led. Um, the second point is intentional but embedded. So yes, it's uh, a agenda, progressive agenda, but it's embedded in the sense that you're not parachuting in with an anti-FGM agenda and parachuting out. Whatever gender equality measures, they have to be embedded within broader developmental goals that speak to people's priorities. Um, and so that's really important because otherwise people do feel uh, you're coming in with with uh, with an agenda that is disconnected from their priorities. The third lesson, um, which is very important, um, is the the fact that women's identity, working with women, does not mean agenda progressive agenda. 
that occasionally you can work with women with the unintended outcome for accountability of making it worse for the women's equality agenda. If you are working, for example, with women's groups that are actively advocating for the idea that women must be properly dressed, otherwise they deserve to be harassed, um, and so they, 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 are, they are going around saying, yes, we're against sexual harassment. Yes, sexual harassment is bad. But how do they intend to counter sexual harassment? By telling women to dress up more modestly. That has serious implications on the gender equality agenda. So I think the first challenge is that we have now learned to disentangle the idea that if you're working with a woman, then necessarily you're advancing a gender agenda. So what we now talk about are coalitions for gender justice. What kind of power configurations, if you bring members from political parties, from different groups that hold power, with those that are championing women's rights so that they would uh, push forward uh, a gender just accountability outcomes. And that we know from very successful cases that we've seen across the board, across different countries. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, Mukhtar, I could see you shaking your head there <laughs> on, the, <laughs> on the point that sometimes as international actors, we just need to back off. <laughs> yes. Uh, Do you disagree strongly with that point? Uh, not, not strongly, but I guess uh, morally, I would say. <laughs> uh, because... Um, before deciding to work either with or without uh, the non-selector or to, to, uh, to intervene or to the cause, the, the actors need to look at, as well as need to look at the narrative behind the making of these exclusionary non-selectors. In cases like Mali, for instance, those non-selectors have, on occasion, emerged as a result of a long-standing perception of exclusion from development opportunities or institutional negligence. On other occasions, they have emerged as a result of um, simply an accountable local authority to decide not to work with that kind of non-state actors. That can hardly be described as being part of the solution. I do agree with Maris, it's quite very uh, 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 um, context. Com complex, but the okay. context actually quite yeah. very yes dictate uh, uh, the possibilities. Because I know you mentioned a lot about gender in terms of exclusionary non-state actors or in, in, uh, institutions. We do also face those challenges in our um, uh, programs. That's why we do have gender equality markers. And we, because we work a lot with subcontractors and suppliers who bid for, uh, uh, for um, programs. And then there's a rigorous um, assessment process they have to be able to actually demonstrate that uh, the program is uh, gender sensitive, which means, mean, as you correctly pointed out, not necessarily just working with women, but also like <laughs> in so many other cases. Um, but at the same time, but what we do face a lot is actually both a group, which includes both women, youth, and elders, against one group, which also includes both women, youth, and, and elders. And this is the kind of exclusions we face a lot in our, in our pro, uh, uh, in our, um, uh, Programming, we try, as, as I mentioned, trying to look at the history behind the making, uh, the narrative behind uh, the making of this, of um, of this group, and I think that's that's actually, um, I think, bring a bit of a contention with uh, Mary's point earlier. Just we should, I should normally keep. I would say we should in some try cases, now first to sort of investigate and see whether this is actually something we should keep out of. But actually, um, in this case, I think uh, what what is important is actually the making of this exclusionary. Uh, non-state actors. Okay, and on the 
Um, Eric, did you want to come in there? No, I just, I just wanted to, to I, I think there's one thing which, which I think is critically important, right? Any intervention where you work with, with these legitimacy issues are obviously um, extremely controversial. And I think it's important that uh, donors recognize the need to set aside a lot of funds to actually monitor what is going on. You need to understand how does this change the political economy? What are the consequences? Um, and you shouldn't engage in an activity like this unless you actually have resources available and that you feel that you are in a position to actually uh, measure the changes that are taking place and who benefits. I mean, some of the examples we've heard here uh, as well. Can I just say a short thing on the gender issue? Um, we are working actually with, with advice also from, from Emma here, but an SD Direct. Uh, we have a small uh, side project uh, with the gatekeepers because they themselves actually, it's not our idea, but they came up with the idea that they wanted to work with um, gender-based violence, child marriages, and, and FGM. And we are taking the local context as, as the starting point, but that's also a dilemma. Um, just a very short version, you can have three ways of FGM in, in, in this context, a very rough one. Everything is removed, stitched together, etc. cetera. The, the, the also, let's say, where the other version where half of clitoris is removed, etc. And then there is what we call the gentle prick, where you use a needle and there will be a bit of blood. Um, um, now, the dilemma is, can, can we work in, in this environment? So we've been working with imams and to, to say, well, Obviously, these, all these three types should be avoided, but obviously you, you, you also have to, uh, to recognize the local context as well. So we actually, we've actually tried to move towards this sort of gentle prick. It's still a rights violation, right? I mean, there's no long-term consequences of this, but in the, when the action takes place, it's still a right violation. But if you're not there, then you have the other uh, sort of more tough uh, intervention as well. So there is a dilemma, which I think is, is, is a very uh, tough dilemma, but uh, that you need to take into consideration. I, I guess hopefully you're you're moving in in the right direction by. Uh, that's what we think we yeah. are. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Yes. Um, I just want to pick up on on Sam's question about um, NGOs becoming quite powerful actors and and potentially um, working as as barriers in the state building process. Um, Mukhtar, do you? I, I, in Northern Mali, I know that's that's um, quite a, quite an issue. Um, do you think that that international actors should continue to work with with NGOs, even though they may be um, preventing the state from taking responsibility for what for what they should be doing? Um, I think international community should continue to work better definitely under more with more scrutiny. I think the issue really there, it's not necessarily, the problem is on the NGO per se, in my understanding. It's much more about the, um, the absence of a state to actually direct intentions and also to guide uh, intervention. That's not mean necessarily the programs um, the implementing are fundamentally wrong in, in, in their approach, right? because if you don't have the kind of uh, institutional guidance from the top, and you're actually uh, taking over the services it's supposed to provide in, in, in those areas. Sometimes I think this will actually agree with you that you're actually giving him a bit of a relief, uh, again, the fact that you're actually uh, taking over this responsibility. You're helping create a bit of connection where they can actually take over on what you built on. So 
one challenge, however, this uh, the, your point addressed that can that's a stumbling block to that kind of a, a uniform uh, building approach, as you mentioning, is a lack of uh, a coordination and synergy between international actors with substantial uh, financial influence. If you look at Northern Mali or the Central Mali um, at, at, at the moment, um, that part of countries attract now more funding than any other part uh, of the country. But yet, the, the situation continues to worsen. So it's very easy to come and say, well, the NGOs are not doing the properly, or the, uh, the international community, or the, the actors are not putting the right amount of funding at the right place. But actually, if you look at it from sitting back a little bit, this actress is trying to react to something that is happening. I want to create a buffer zone where they actually contain the whole issue in, in, in there and solve it. But I do also agree with your point, Sam, because if the state cannot help define the concept of state it wants to have in that particular area, then are we actually, are we actually contributing towards um, a, a good notion of state building? Because we've seen with concepts of state that actually the modern state as we see it can sometimes be a notion of state that, it, that automatically exclude other forms of territorial-based power and rule. Um, so we have a, a question from online, which I think is an interesting question for Maurice, and it's um, about whether uh, we have any recommendations or useful analytical frameworks to help understand when or in what contexts external actors should take a step back and not work with non-state actors. This is a really, really, really good question. I think this is, I'll take this recommendation as something that we have to work on in the next five years <laughs> program because we've, we've, we've come across it. Um, but it's all at the moment just, uh, you know, examples from different case studies um, where, uh, state where, where external support created a backlash uh, because of the way it was done. So we were not interrogating whether external support is in and of itself good or bad. We were just saying how it was done in the manner it was done where it created a backlash. We do have this with respect to the issues of gender equality. Um, so um, this, is, this is a bit shamefully uh, self-referential that IDS has a publication called, let me remember its name uh, in one second. It's an IDS bulletin, it's free app, open access, called Gender, uh, Rights and Religion at the Crossroads, where Cassandra Balkan, who uh, passed away a few years ago, was looking at cases where external support for elders to work in a very concerted way on gender equality issues had the unintended outcome of uh, displacing work on gender equality and where uh, elders began to use a dual discourse. In the face of the external actors, they would say, yes, we're all for you know, women's rights, we're all for blah, blah, blah. But then in another space, they would use a discourse that was entirely different. And because the external actors didn't have access to those other spaces, they didn't know what was going on. Um, so um, yeah, if, uh, I'm very happy to send her the details of this. But I think beyond that specific issue, beyond the gender equality agenda, um, I think we need to, to look more at systematic data on this. And I think it will all be about the details. It's, in, I would guess, and this is a, I could be completely wrong, that in most cases, the question 
will not be so much as whether external, external agency is good or bad. It's external agency enacted through which local partners, at what point in time, through what mechanisms, and whether it was sensitive enough to the power dynamics on the ground. Okay. Um, Mohammed, are, are you back online? Yes, I am. Um, I'm just going to try putting that question that we had from the audience to you again. It's about um, whether you think that, in fact, it's, it's misleading to say that elders are non-state actors and in actual fact they are much more a part of the state than apart from the state. Would you agree with that? Okay, in the Somali in, uh, context, elders are not part of the state, uh, except in uh, regions in the north, uh, in in Somaliland, uh, the, it's uh, institutionalized, but uh, in the federal government of Somalia, it's not. And elders are not part of the system. They, they have no place in the constitution. It's uh, totally informal. So they're not state actors. Okay, great. So I, I think I think what makes um, Somalia different from the UK is that it's um, there's a <laughs> on one point <laughs> is that um, el elders their role is being increasingly formalised, but they are distinct from the from the state. And um, I, pardon? That's pretty formal. Well, the, 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 they they don't appoint the president. They no. Uh, uh, Mohammed, do you want to explain? Okay, the elders appoint the voters who uh, elect the members of parliament who elect the president. So by extension, you can say yes, probably. So, but uh, just clarify how many voters? 13,000. Well, each elder has uh, and uh, selects 51 and uh, for, so there's 275 and seats of law house of parliament. And uh, the, some elders will select and two or three sets of 51 and, and, and voters to select one or two or three different uh, MPs. So, um, yeah, so some elders have more power than others, and, but, and depending on the plan they represent. But so, so yeah, those people select select the MPs. And so it it, is, it does um, the total number I think comes up to fourteen about fourteen thousand voters. So it's it's not yeah. it's not um, a, a, a one person one vote. It's not representative but in any it's, way. But, it's and it's, and uh, elders, so they are obviously very influential, but they, they're not directly electing the president. That system's not formalized. Yeah, 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 so yes, that's one, are, that's one part are, of their role that, it, that has been formalized, but... Um, hmm? it, is formal, it is formalized, yes. That's, so that's one part of the role that, that has been recently formalized, but that, that happened, I think... It was in the lead up to the 2016 election, so. And it's not it's not formalized. It was it was a, a temporary thing, just for now, a temporary fix. That's true. They said only for 2016, and but uh, apparently they're going to do it again, but uh, they said they won't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I I just open up to a final round of questions. Um, you're, um, hi, um, I'm Adam Martin from Anti-Tribalism Movement. I have two questions, and one of them is in 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 boss conflict society like Somalia, 
how do you determine who's a gatekeeper who's an, who's a real gatekeeper and who's who who's an, because for example in in the lower Shabala and in the Jibba regions there are a lot of people who claim is to be gatekeepers of specific um, refugee uh, camps or and IDB centers but to be honest maybe the, they have a power because they're the clan that has that has took that has taken the power after the civil war and they have no legitimacy at the at the at the at the at the community level or at the IDB level. So if somebody tells someone comes to you and says, "Yeah, I represent and 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 I've got your corridor and I'm the clan leader," do you, do you take that as a face face value or even in Mogadishu? And also, same for um, for Mohammed. Um, some of those elders are sometimes um, their role are contested and. And whether they have, whether they're the actual leaders of those of those of those specific communities that they that they claim to represent. If you look at the case of Somaliland, there is individuals who are who selected the their sets of MBs, their 63 or whatever MBs that they get at the at the, at the government <coughs> federal level. And these individuals are not people that has been elected or given a mandate by the communities or the or, or, or the or the Somalis in Somaliland. And also the the. Um, the second question is the attitude that we see in Somalia, for example, from an NGO. When you ask them about, uh, when you talk about or ask them about accountability, they they turn around and say we require mutual accountabilities. So, for example, you working on a project in Somalia or you working project in 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 North Malawi, sometimes they might say, actually, who are you accountable to? Before you ask me, an accountability of what I do. So how, how do how how do we how do we showcase and how do we ensure that we are practicing what we're preaching to those communities before we ask them some of those requirements and maybe that that is more general question to all of you. Okay, great double question. <laughs> um, there was a question over here. Hi, uh, Emma Thomas, Ministry of Justice. Um, I was wondering. I mean, it's sort of notorious that legitimacy legitimacy is hard to measure. So I'm wondering how you're measuring accountability and whether you disaggregate those findings to understand that there might be accountability gains in the eyes of some um, and not for others. Great, and I think there's uh, one just... Thank you. Uh, this is more of an observation than a question. Um, in quick, I'm a Consultant, I just came back from uh, Central African Republic where I've been working a lot the last few years, um, particularly in the Northeast there. And you can divide non-state actors, I guess, into three groups. One is the who are regarded as sort of purely criminal. Uh, you interact with them only to uh, contain them or, in some cases, attack them or arrest them. The second, which is the biggest case, um, there is collaboration on a task basis. You would never engage with them as a governance actor in the sense of um, how they operate in terms of inclusion, certainly not in terms of public finance, but you work on very specific things like security of key roads, the cattle trade, stuff like this. And the third category, which is much smaller in that case, are actors who are incorporated somewhat in the constitutional order, who are acknowledged as having some political place under a, a functioning provisional peace agreement or something of this nature. And that's that's the situation in which, yes, maybe you start talking about, can some of these people transition into a formal political party? Can you start looking at women's representation, this sort of thing? And 
that's far from a typology or a framework, but in, in practice, that's sort of how it's broken down in that case. Okay, great um, observation there. Just, uh, I know you had a, a, a question, so if, if it's really quick, <laughs> then. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, Lizzie Hobbs, I'm a master's student at King's. Um, was just wondering in the context of Pakistan, whether you're talking about the jerk Thank you. The Jirgas, um and Talibanization kind of countering that, whether you found that um, counter-terror legislation, things like that, meant that external actors are quite limited in who they can engage with and whether they can't actually access the real power brokers because there's quite blurred lines with militias and things like that. Okay. I think they're really good questions to... Uh, try and get our heads around and finish up within 10 minutes. Um, so um, I think the the question on who are the gatekeepers and how do you decide which of them to work with, yes. uh, I'm going to put that to you, Eric. Um, I think these are all really good questions. And maybe you can um, say something about the mutual accountability yes, as exactly. well. Um, we've been fortunate enough to have uh, considerable resources attached to the research part, right? Um, well, first of all, I'll say I've worked on the gatekeeper issue since 2012 in Mogadishu, and there's been a change. In uh, 2012, it was very uh, it was sort of an undercover operation. It was very difficult to identify who was the real uh, gatekeeper, and, and, and uh, the system was much more entrenched and linked to the central government, and, and well, not the central government, but individuals at high, at high levels. Um, since then, there's been a formalization, so now they actually do have signboards with the names and numbers on. Um, so, so in that sense, you could say they're easy to identify. But we are doing, we've done uh, 200 uh, questionnaires. We've done, I don't know how many focus group uh, discussions, etc. We work in 10 selected settlements, um, and we've done that over two years. So we are quite sure that we have uh, the right uh, gatekeepers in, in, our, in our case. Um, but, but just to, actually I'm going to jump to the, to, to the accountability because that also relates back to the accountability questions. How do we actually know um, the changes that, that take place? Well, we are constantly monitoring uh, the situation, so we have constant, um, we think we do, <laughs> overview of, of what is happening on the ground. Having said that, you, you don't always know all the elements of the political economy at a local level. And... Uh, the Somali society, in some ways, are an exclusive society because partly of the clan structure and also with gender, uh, significant gender biases. Um, and just because the, the gatekeeper becomes um, uh, more accountable to the local government, is, provides more commitment, it doesn't necessarily mean that the most marginalized uh, in the IDP settlements are uh, sufficiently heard in that process. We hope that we are moving a little closer because this was also the case before we went in, uh, but it is, it is of course, uh, it is an issue. Mutual accountability, practicing what we preach, uh, it's always a good question. Um, <laughs> we've tried to design, I mean, uh, the, the, the gatekeepers themselves have identified their commitments as to what the changes they want to see. It's not something we've come up with, and then we're helping them with implementing these uh, commitments. We've also, the IDPs themselves, we've also trained, I didn't touch so much upon that, they're also making commitments. One of the things they're actually doing is that they are making sort of welfare groups where they identify beneficiaries themselves 
outside of the settlement manager, the gatekeeper, the first time ever, right? So you can say that they're sort of encroaching on the account, uh, the, the authority of, of, of the gatekeeper in, in, in that process. And we're trying to follow their lead. Uh, but of course, the original idea is ours. Uh, and before we move in, we have an idea of what we want to do. But we did change uh, the program uh, a number of times during the implementation, as we learned uh, throughout. Yeah. And um, Mohammed, um, just on that on that question of how how you which elders you decide to work with, and do you make a, a judgment call on elders that you don't think are necessarily legitimate in their local communities? Okay, and um, about the legitimacy of the elders. In 2012, there was a conference of uh, clan elders and clan representatives, and several hundred of them. And from that number, it was selected, 135 were selected to represent all the clans. So when we say clan elders and uh, the legitimacy, that's what we refer to, the 135. And uh, so, in terms of legitimacy, there's also questions all the time. And in the last election, uh, they added one more elder. And uh, for political reasons, they wanted somebody to get elected. He couldn't get elected because he didn't have an elder, so they created an elder for him. <laughs> and so there's that kind of thing. Okay, so, so definitely some problems within that system. <laughs> and and who's, who's actually selecting those elders? And in 2012, they were selected by clan representatives, and uh, it was supposed to be final. And 135 this represent all Somalis. And but uh, as you know, in the last election, we had a very, um, very corrupt government, and uh, they they changed everything to suit their needs. So it was not supposed to be them who do that, but they did it. They added an elder, and but they didn't have the authority to do that. Okay. Um, thanks, Mohammed. Um, Marise, on that question of measuring accountability. Yes. I'm actually going to go back to the question you started with, mutual accountability, because it's something we're very much struggling with in IDS since all our work is with partners. So in the consortium, for example, where we had PASCAR, which is a Nigerian-based organization and so forth, we made sure there is full transparency in the budget allocation. The devil is always in the budget. It's who gets what part of the budget to do what. And we made sure that there is full transparency on that. The second is, I believe, the co-construction of the agenda. And that means that um, we need to make sure that it's the research questions themselves are co-constructed. And the third has to do with credit. Because as you know, a lot of the cases are cases where uh, on, on the basis of our we're a different set of gatekeepers here on the basis of our privilege to visibility in certain spaces. Uh, it is very tempting for us to get credit for work that is, has actually been on the ground, been done with local partners. So we make sure that there are avenues for visibility of our local partners um, uh, on the work that they've done. Um, and I think one of the things that is very, very important for us is if you are able to work with local research partners, um, and do work through action research, where there is a process of continuous action and then reflection and so forth, um, that, that is less extractive than sending a group of researchers from here to work in country X. Um, but it doesn't mean it deals with all the issues of mutual accountability. It, it's just we're trying to shift the terrain a little bit so it's less um, skewed towards um, 
um, our knowledge and our resources privileging the positioning and visibility. Um, and I think transparency is important. But on the question of measuring accountability, we're really struggling with this. The first thing we started with is in all of these five countries doing questions of what does accountability look like to you? And in many cases, the word did not translate into local languages easily. Um, just to, you know, just to sort of give you an example, in Egypt, the, the literal translation is muhasaba, which sounds like you're an accounting firm. <laughs> you know, it, it has the nuances of accountancy. But then the variation of it, Musa Allah, has a much less power diluted version, which is responsibility. So, you know, whichever term you, you, you use, you're in trouble. Um, but we also recognize that in conventional literature, accountability means two things answerability, and just in the words of Jonathan Fox, our partner in this initiative, just. Somebody help me, justiciability, you know, that, that you can not only hold to account, but actually redress wrongs. Now, in many contexts, when you have a state of contested authority, who are you going to? In many contexts where authority is very authoritarian, where the state is very keen to show that it is bestowing things upon its subjects as opposed to being accountable to its subjects. We need, to look very, we need to look very carefully at what does accountability look like in these contexts. And in many cases, it, it, it was a case of just even accessibility, opening the avenues for conversations between the power holders and those that want to change reality. It wasn't accountability, but it, it created that space for some kind of shift. In other cases, um, empowerment happened, but, but accountability, you know, empowerment to people in exercising their agency, but accountability was more problematic because, um, because, uh, because there was an immediate reaction of showing, okay, we're taking on board your concerns. But the long-term institutionalization of a policy of being responsive was a far way off. Um, so we're still struggling with immediate and long-term and redresses and, and different meanings in different contexts. And we hope to be able to share that with you as, as it emerges. Very quickly on the question of power holders. <laughs> oh, maybe we should have this in the, in the discussion time. Um, because I, I want others to have an opinion. Yeah, just we'll speak. just actually move we'll, to... We'll, we'll touch base on that <laughs> after, the after the session. This is the... the oh, um, how can you access the real power holders in, in the context of, of <laughs> counterterrorism? Is that, is that what you want to answer? Because yes, I was going to put that to actually. Yeah, I was wondering so if Mukhtar has can, uh, reflections yes. on that because that's very relevant, of course, to Mali. Um, so, what the question is, uh, can you. So, uh, uh, the question is in the uh, current um, counterterrorism mm -hmm. uh, political agenda, how do you know that you're accessing the people with the real, with the real power? Yes, um, I think that, that question, and with the, that's, uh, that's, that's quite a very relevant. Um, and I think what we do really try to, to do, as I mentioned earlier, when you're working in a fast-paced political environment with a multitude of, uh, of actors with different interests, um, it's all in, in, it really boils down to our own conflict sensitivity approach and do no harm approaches. Because sometimes it gives you a group of young men or people who just Taking arms here in this case and told that they want to ne 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 uh, negotiate, but actually the re the reality that they see a cake, they want to have a share 
of that kid. So what we try to do really is to a little bit of a stand back from all that kind of a specter. We want to have demonstrable and actually tangible and uh, visible uh, 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 proof that you have some sort of, a, uh, as you mentioned earlier, kind of a community acceptance at the, at the local level. And that's why our program is trying to go into that community and work with this community to see those practices in place. So it's very difficult to come and trick us and say, well, I represent X and if you're my X. For us, it's all start from the grassroots in the actual, in, in the actual community. But what I did also want to address about your mutual um, uh, accountability uh, point is that from our perspective, it's very, very clear that we are accountable to the British people. <laughs> Because our programs take it, directives is, from is the it, national. Is it always very clear? <laughs> <laughs> well, because our our programs our programs follow the national security council directives, and we do have a we do have a set of board that programs have to be approved. So if you don't meet certain cr uh, criteria or you don't respond to certain uh, to certain points set from from above, there's no way your program gonna make it through. So that's one aspect. But we do also deploy quite a very interesting mix of uh, mechanism to ensure all partners are quite accountable uh, to what they're doing. And one of them is ICAI, which is the Independent Commission of Aid Impact. And also have our, our annual, annual reviews process, which is, run, which is run annually to ensure whether the, actual, the, the expected outcome stated in the program document is actually what has, uh, has been achieved. We see our work with, um, with the implementers as a partnership in which they can come to us any time. When it's in a question, I guess I'll link back to your, um, uh, my fellow uh, Minister of Justice over there. <laughs> uh, actually, how we uh, we can ensure measure um, the the accountability and actually the legitimacy. Like, but I guess the uh, the conflict security and stability fund remains one of the most the least transparent fund. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> if I can say a note there, <laughs> we do have. Uh, I can. I believe Archive um, is there. It's quite in, in deep, independent, and I believe it's one of the main true. one of the main objectives is to actually to monitor. It's like it's like our audit to make sure what are we actually doing, what uh, and what we set out to to, to, to do. So I think Archive would be the best place to uh, to answer to actually measure whether we actually being accountable or not. So, <laughs> transparent. So in some way, I think that there is more we can do on mutual accountability. Um, <laughs> both to the British people and to the, the people we're working with in country. Um, I guess what comes through really strongly from this discussion is the, the huge range of non-state actors and the different relationships um, uh, both um, with the state and with other non-state actors so that we get this kind of picture of, a, I guess, a, a network of different power holders which creates quite a, a different challenge for us when we're, we're thinking about improving accountability. So rather than thinking about uh, this relationship between the citizen and the state, we need to think perhaps about the citizen and a range of, of different power brokers and, and power mediators. Mm -hmm. That's a, um, an impression that comes across really strongly. But in, in uh, one minute, can I just put it to the panels, your final conclusion on whether non-state actors are friends or foes? We'll start with you, Eric. Um, well, I mean, I, I, either or, got 30, right? you got 10 seconds. Okay. <laughs> they're both. They're both. Don't be co-opted by them. But obviously, I mean, we can't work 
development is messy. You need to uh, work in the context and political economy where you are. I mean, you can't put on a blueprint. So that means you need to engage also with non-state actors. Sure. Mokhtar? Um, I agree with Eric. Uh, they're, they're both, because uh, when you have a multitude of actors, someone's friend and someone's enemy, and also in cases where the friend of your friend tells you, well, I'm not your friend. So non-state actors do actually provide a fantastic opportunity to change tables around in areas where the potential, the state, uh, the state actors has the limited potential of success, but they can become the feared, perfect, dreaded enemy when they go wrong. Yeah, that is true. Um, Mohammed, friend or foe? I, I think in I think in most cases they are not friends. Ooh, <laughs> controversial. <laughs> <laughs> And Marie's? I know this seems like dodging the question. Because well, you are an academic. In, in, the <laughs> in the spirit of challenging dichotomies, non-state <laughs> actors sometimes spill over in state and state spills over in non-state. And friend or foe depends on the moment, the issue, the nature of the relationship. So it's 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 I'm I'm in the spirit of challenging all kinds of binaries and categorizations. I'm always going to say it depends. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so I hope you enjoyed the discussion this evening. Um, lots lots of complexities in working with non-state actors. If you want to read in more detail about um, the learning that has been captured from these programs that we've talked about this evening, um, there is a report um, specifically looking at Eric's program and. Uh, Mohammed's program in Somalia. There's this report that looks uh, more broadly at um, IAAAP's work with non-state actors. And then, of course... Come and see me if you want yeah. to come into the, our program. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.